We're going to be reading the entirety of Matthew 23, verses uh, 1 to 39. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who's in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting 
the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Li Wen Liang, his face and name has already gone down in history as the coronavirus whistleblower. Uh, unfortunately, he contracted the virus himself uh, at the tender young age of 33. Uh, and yes, uh, I'm saying to my friends who are in their early 30s, you are still at a tender age. Uh, and uh, he succumbed, he died, he passed away too young. Uh, nevertheless, his face and name have gone down in history as the one who warned, who warned of this novel coronavirus. Over a year later, I'm certain that as a world, we wish we had paid earlier attention and heeded his warnings as soon as possible and done as much as we could to perhaps mitigate uh, what we're experiencing now. As we come to today's passage, uh, there's something very powerfully similar going on. Jesus is warning. And he's not only warning, but he's also arraigning 
and indicting with some of the strongest rebukes that, at least in my personal reading of Matthew's Gospel up to this point, I think this, these are Jesus' strongest words so far. And they're strong in rebuke. They're strong in warning, uh, even condemning to hell. Now, Jesus, in some sense, like Li Wenliang, he's warning of a kind of virus. Uh, he's warning of something that is both unseen, but also plays out in ways that we can see and experience, detect. Uh, and of course, Jesus is speaking of a spiritual virus that is even more deadly than the coronavirus. And uh, just to get to the point, he's speaking of a sinful heart. The spiritual virus of a sinful heart, it not only leads to physical death, it will one day. That's why we die. That's what the Bible says, why we die, because sin has corrupted life as God meant it to be, and now sickness and disease and death are part of the curse of this broken world. Um, But it has effects. A sinful heart has effects far worse than just physical death. It also leads to spiritual death, uh, which the Bible describes as eternal separation from the loving kindness of God. And Jesus himself is not shy to use the word hell. And that word, I'm sure, was just as taboo and uncomfortable during Jesus' time as it is today. And so we uh, should take heed to Jesus being willing to use this black and white, in-our-face word. Now, any preacher worth their salt uh, will always do their best attempt to bring out the tenor and text, uh, the, the, the tenor and tone of the text. And today uh, is a warning passage. Uh, it's Jesus being very serious. And so if I seem like that, um, it's because I'm, I'm trying to immerse myself into the text and, and really communicate what Jesus himself was trying to communicate. Uh, now, to summarize uh, what Jesus is getting at, now this spiritual virus of a sinful heart, the, the outward effect that we can recognize it by is what we'll call false religion. False religion. Uh, and uh, I'll show you in a, in a moment why I believe that that is a fair summary of what Jesus is warning against. But before we get to that, uh, to continue the analogy of a virus, I was really moved this past week to see the headlines and pictures of as pop-up vaccination centers are popping up in hotspot areas, literally thousands of people lining up at four in the morning, five in the morning, and then being turned away because there's not enough vaccine uh, you know, a cutoff after 500 people or so. And so thousands. And it, it brought to life a little bit more some of Matthew's descriptions in his gospel where he would describe thousands of people, the crowds following Jesus because they want to be healed. They, they are so desperate for life. Whether, I mean, a lot of them were motivated by physical healing, but Jesus, when he met them, first provided uh, healing for their sinful hearts, forgiveness. And then from there, also even providing physical healing as a wonderful sign of the life to come uh, in the new creation. And I think we, I mean, certainly as a humanity, we have that longing for life. Many of us, if we're honest, because of our fear of death, we're willing to go line up 
early in the morning, seeking life, seeking that vaccination shot because it represents a chance at um, health and extending our lives. And, and so how much more should we heed Jesus' words today because he's warning of something worse than physical death. He's warning of spiritual death. And so the prayer that I offer to you today as a summary of today's passage is, Lord, draw me away from false religion because false religion will ultimately lead to spiritual death. It'll lead to eternal separation from God. Draw me away from false religion by the goodness, truth, and beauty of Jesus. Now, why do I feel confident to say that Jesus is warning us against false religion? Because in verse 2, Jesus describes a religious experience that these scribes and Pharisees, they're teaching uh, what religion is and how to live it out. And Jesus says, yes, listen to them, but not the works that they do. So Jesus is identifying something good, a good religion, to obey what the Pharisees are teaching, but identifying that and outing these Pharisees that they don't do what they're teaching and preaching. So theirs is a false religion. And then later on in verse 33, Jesus says, addressing the Pharisees, these religious leaders of the time, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? And so there it is. Their false religion, their misguided religion can lead to eternal separation from God. So I want to ask basically uh, two questions today. First, how do I spot false religion? Because certainly false religion is without. It's out there and we need to recognize it. And even, even in our own church, when we know churches is immune to slipping sometimes, to, to missing the mark at times. Even this past week, I was listening to a sermon from a Christian church, and, and the whole message was God is here to help you achieve your dreams on earth. And so basically, um, muster up your will and follow these principles and do uh, work harder. And there was no speak of, of our desperation before God and in need of His grace. And so certainly, even Trinity Grace Church, we need to be alert. So how do we spot it? Uh, and then secondly, what is true religion? So let's get into it. How do I spot false religion? First, false religion naturally has leaders and followers. Now, we see first a good example, picking up in verse 1, Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples. And so, of course, Jesus is teaching true religion centered in him, and it's built on what he says, what he speaks, uh, the belief system that he is uh, passing on. And notice that he speaks to the crowds, and we're to understand this as a mixed crowd. In the crowd, there are those who are seeking, perhaps even antagonistic and skeptical, but also within the crowd, the larger circle of the crowd, there is the circle of his disciples who have uh, decidedly um, made a commitment, uh, placed faith in Jesus, and they're following him. And so here, in terms of true religion, we see the leader, Jesus and the followers. But certainly, false religion has leaders and followers. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is because I want all of us to realize, whether you're a Christian or not, that, and even as a Christian, perhaps because our hearts are mixed, uh, we, even as we sincerely overall try to follow Jesus, there might be parts of our heart that are led astray in smaller things or, or other in in. Overall, we're following Jesus, but still there's room to continue to follow him 
more truly. And all of us, all of us are religious. Now, it's helpful in life to balance the concrete and the abstract. And we need to think about religion both concretely and abstractly. Some of us naturally are more concrete, uh, and and we we are happy with, uh, just tell me what to do. Give me clear instructions, and I'll follow them. And some of us naturally are more prone to thinking of ideas and theories and, and the abstract. And what I want to show you is that religion is not just concrete religion like the major world religions that we typically think of. Buddhism, Judaism, Islam, Christianity. Those are concrete religions, concrete belief systems that believe in a certain God and are trying to conduct themselves based on that. But abstractly, all of us, even the atheistic scientists, you are religious. Case in point, part of uh, one social group chat and and someone quipped um, with the latest restrictions. Golf is my religion. And, and he was making a jab at churches. Uh, why do churches still get to meet with 10 people minimum in this uh, phase of restrictions? And golf is now completely restricted. And he was just putting it, well, just putting it out there. Golf is my religion. I should be able to gather with just four people, you know, a foursome. And so for this person, abstractly, he's religious as well. Even if he's an atheistic scientist who doesn't believe in any God and, and perhaps doesn't, you know, isn't quote-unquote concretely religious, saying prayers and so forth, he's a religious person because at the, the essence of religion is basically you believe in a belief system, you're devoted to it, and you are trying to live your life centered around it. And so certainly this person is, is religious and he worships at the temple of 18 holes. So I want you to see and acknowledge, admit, look in the spiritual mirror and admit to yourself, you follow someone or something. And even for the Christ follower, on our best days, our hearts are divided. Even if overall we're following Jesus. We are all religious. And I want to say, we are all leaders to some degree. There's a spectrum of of leadership. Uh, on the one end, you have the most high and mighty global political leaders, the prime ministers, the presidents, the kings, the queens. And then you have economic leaders and juggernauts, CEOs who can uh, move the global economy. And as you scale down, you have people like teachers and parents. And even if uh, you consider yourself not a, fo- a leader and you're more of a follower, no, at some point you have influence on someone's life. Perhaps it's a friend, perhaps it's a son, perhaps it's a daughter, perhaps it's a parent, perhaps you you have influence. Even the homeless person can be the leader amongst his homeless crew there on the streets. And so everyone has some measure of influence. And so if you accept, I'm a leader as well to some degree, then all the more you're face-to-face with the accountability and especially as a Christian, even as a Christian, you like to serve in the background. You like to be quiet and unseen. You are still an influencer. You still have influence. And all the more, all of us as Christ followers are meant to be sharing the gospel and, and making attempts and having that as a priority in our life. And at some point, you're going to come one-to-one with someone and be sharing with them about your faith and who Jesus Christ is And in that moment, you're a leader. You're influencing. What you say can have eternal consequences in their life. 
And so, again, the point being, we need to heed Jesus' warnings and be wary, be, be aware of false religion both without and even within our own selves, our own hearts. So here's the reflective question. Uh, are you spreading false religion or true religion? Uh, even, especially during these times of pandemic, um, whatever your stances, whatever your choices are in, in terms of safety and staying home or coming in person to church and uh, whatever it is, you know, how you greet people even at your, your own home door, um, is, there, is there an openness or is there a nervousness and a fear? Are you spreading your, your example, your implicit testimony by, through your actions? What are you spreading? What are you spreading? And now I'm, I'm pointedly asking the Christ follower today. Are you spreading false Christianity or true Christianity? Well, moving on, false religion is full of double standards. Uh, Jesus is very clear, and this is what we need to look out for. This is how we spot false religion. And he says in verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, meaning they are the authoritative teachers of God's law through Moses. Uh, and, and this expression just means that they have the authority to teach God's law. They're in that position. Uh, so do and observe whatever they tell you. Jesus is affirming that we should uh, do our best to take what we still need to obey from God's law, even to this day, to apply it to 2021. The Old Testament is still legitimate. It is substantial. It is there for us to, to study and to glean God's morals and His principles, His wisdom for our life. And we're to observe it and do whatever they're uh, telling you, but don't do what they do because they weren't practicing what they preach. Now, to apply this, uh, to take a step backward and, and to apply this to 2021, um, I didn't ask uh, Colin Nelder, my fellow elders at Trinity Grace Church, uh, permission for this, but I think they'll be okay with it. Um, you should hold us accountable. Trinity Grace Church, uh, at least personally, I give you permission to hold uh, me accountable. I'm doing, by God's grace, the best to, to not be a hypocrite, to, to practice what I preach. I'm not perfect, but Jesus' point is this, that leaders in the church, elders, deacons, but not just leaders. Remember, everyone is a leader at some point. Every Christ follower has influence at some point to some degree. And so this applies to us still today. But all the more especially the, the, I guess you could say, the official leaders in the church. And that's why Paul himself teaches anyone who would seek to be an elder, uh, they need to reflect um, soberly because they, they, they want to take on a very grave task. That's my paraphrase of what he's saying. And so Jesus says here very clearly, they preach but do not practice. They put all these heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they put it on people's shoulders. They make them feel guilty for it. They criticize, but they themselves don't live by those standards. And so again, look in the spiritual mirror. 
What are your answers to these questions? Do you frequently place expectations and demands on people? Is that your personality? Is that what people know you for? That you frequently place expectations and demands, that you are a demanding person. Do you find yourself then, part and parcel, frequently disappointed, often disappointed by people because of unmet expectations? And these are first warning lights, like on the car dash, when that yellow triangle with the exclamation mark shows up. It's a warning. You need to pay attention. It's not saying automatically that you are guilty of the same false religion that Jesus is uh, uh, outing here in the Pharisees. But we need to be careful. That's when we start to need to begin to pay attention. What's going on in my heart? If I'm a very demanding person, if I'm a very... And this third question, do you find yourself judging people often? Now, I want to throw out here, um, and this is me looking in my own mirror, I have to be careful when I begin to sarcastically judge. It might be a joke on the surface, but if I am, uh, if I find myself um, sarcastically, jokingly judging a lot, that's when I need to begin to check my heart. And oftentimes, more than not, when I pause to just listen, pray, uh, invite the Holy Spirit to search my heart, there's something off in my heart when I'm in that mode. And so I offer you the same challenge to look in the mirror. If you find yourself uh, talking about people, if you're not in an official position to evaluate people, if that's not part of the the relationship and the job, then then if you're going to talk about someone without them there, only speak good of them. Only speak good of them. But if you find yourself judging them, even jokingly judging behind their backs. You need to look in the mirror. Well, let's move on. Next, false religion idolizes recognition. Idolizes recognition. Jesus brings this up very clearly. They do all their deeds, speaking of these religious leaders, but again, this applies to all of us, right? Just, I hope, I'm not going to say that again, this message, but this applies to all of us. We're all leaders to some degree as Christ followers. We need to question what we are spreading. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Uh, You might be wondering what a phylactery is. Uh, Someone said yesterday, once a youth pastor, uh, I was talking to someone, always a youth pastor, and I was thinking, is that true? Because I used to be a youth pastor, so I'm going to prove him right. And, And a phylactery, if you don't know, this is my best attempt at it. It was this this box that the Pharisees wore, and it comes from Deuteronomy. It was a lot smaller than this. But Jesus' point here is here, I think over time it evolved and got bigger and bigger because it says they make their phylacteries broad. And this box held uh, Scripture verses. And it was an object lesson in Deuteronomy, God wanting His people to have His words and His Scriptures, His promises, His warnings on their mind all the time. But now, instead, it it mutated into a status symbol, into a a fashion even to be recognized and to be lauded and uh, respected for. Something that symbolized being VIP and I'm better than you. Now notice, Jesus says in verse 6, 
And they love, they love this place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. And they love the greetings. We need to pay attention to that word love because that word love, there, there are three main types of love in the New Testament. There's Jesus' sacrificial agape love. Uh, there is the eros love between a husband and wife. And there's phileo love, which on the surface means a friendship, but the deeper meaning is affection. And so you could paraphrase this, and they have affection for the place of honor, for being just feeding their uh, and finding their self-worth by hearing all the compliments and praises of people. And some of us today, certainly, if we're honest, we struggle with that too. We're, we're guilty of that. We need that affirmation. It's very much uh, just uh, driven in the workplace as well. It's very much, you, you strive for that, the affirmations, the promotions, and so forth. Now, just to give you a quick overview of how this works, and this is something good to understand uh, as the Christ follower for your life, because a lifelong journey until Christ calls us home is to continue to have our hearts uh, purified so that our greatest and deepest affection becomes Christ. Now, when it all plays out, uh, let's speak of healthy affections, healthy uh, attachments, but the evil twin of an affection is an addiction. They're basically the same thing at heart, but now addiction is, is an unhealthy affection. And something that controls you. And I don't mean just a substance, but you could be addicted to your child and finding worth in your child's success, just as an example. And so where it all starts, the question is, do you evaluate and order your affections and loves? And it all starts as an attraction. You're attracted to something. And because you're attracted to that someone or something, it, it now garners your attention. As you give more and more attention and your time and your energy to that, you build an adoration, a love, a a wanting that thing or person. And as you become more and more emotionally involved with that thing or person, then you become attached. And so that attachment can be healthy. It can be a healthy affection. And our affections should be set on above as Christ followers and on our Father and Jesus and the Spirit and His Word and His church. But certainly, it can also become an unhealthy addiction. And so, certainly a takeaway from this warning is is for us to continually evaluate and order our affections and loves. Now, Jesus, He goes on to make the point. His point is about drawing our sense of worth from this addictive love of people's affirmation and their praises and being a VIP. And so he goes on to uh, just make the point even stronger by saying you, speaking to his disciples, are not to be called rabbi. Jesus' point is don't find your worth in these titles, in, in these positions of status and titles of status. Because you have one teacher. What the gospel does, what grace does, it equalizes everyone. And ultimately, truly, 
all these titles and positions in life or, or having, you know, a, a bigger a savings account, a bigger retirement fund, all that, that is all ultimately an illusion before God. As if we feel, and we often do, we make ourselves feel better because of these earthly ranking systems. But Jesus says here, no, the truth is there's only one important teacher, that's God, and Himself, and all of us are on an equal plane. We're all brothers. And that's why He says as well, and call no man your Father on earth. Now Jesus, why does He point out Father? Because even His culture was so family-centric. Uh, community and family life was a potential idol. And that's why Jesus at one point says, if you're going to follow me, he speaks in his culture, it was understood in just extreme, what we call hyperbole, exaggeration. If you're going to follow me, you have to hate your own mother and father. Because even your family can become an unhealthy affection, an addiction. And so call, call no man your father on earth, for you have one father, meaning the father in heaven. Now, Jesus literally is not saying then, that my son can't call me dad because he addresses fathers in other places, even in Matthew's gospel, as dads. But his point is, he's making his culture would have understand that Jesus was speaking in an exaggeration on purpose, a hyperbole. Say, don't find your worth in these titles, in these roles, but instead find it in being found a child of God. And Jesus continues, neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ, meaning himself. And again, just to make the point that he's getting at the heart, gets to the issue of humility and humbleness. You see these wearing the phylacteries and so forth, they were trying to pump up their ego and find their self-worth in those things. And so he says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. And he encourages us, to be humbled before God so that God can lift us up instead. Well, moving on, false religion then, and this is Jesus being black and white, not mincing any words, being straightforward. False religion leads you to hell for lack of a heart transformed by God's grace through Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus is about to now go on a, a string of woes, and there are seven woes, but in these first six woes, I want to summarize them uh, with one common thread. And it's this, what I just stated here, that false religion leads you to hell. False religion will ultimately lead you to spiritual death and eternal separation from God. Why? For lack of a heart transformed by God's grace. What we mean by that and what the Pharisees were doing is they, they were promoting that you have to earn your salvation by your works. And through obedience to the law and all the other extra laws that the Pharisees made up. And if you go down that track, then it will lead to your eternal damnation because you can't be good enough before God. This past week, uh, there was a report of uh, an electronic uh, car that crashed its two passengers into a tree and killed them uh, instantly. And at the center of the investigation is the autopilot. And I use that as an analogy that we all have autopilots in our lives. We are all our habits. You are your habits. 
You are the way that you have trained your brain, the, the worldview and the system of belief that whether passively or intentionally, you take on. And in, to a very significant degree, your life is on autopilot. But will your autopilot lead to a crash at that point, at the end of life, as you stand before God, or will it lead to life? And so we need to heed Jesus as he begins his woes. He says first, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. And so here's this image of a door. Have you ever had to pound on a door because you had to get in? And, and just that sense of pounding is, is this striving and this working to try to beat down that door to get to the other side. And, and here's this image of the Pharisees, these religious leaders, teaching a false religion of works. And so they shut the door of the kingdom. And yet they're still trying to pound and teaching other people to try to work themselves and pound themselves into the kingdom. Now, we need to uh, understand and appreciate that these woes for Jesus, now he is bearing his soul. He's wearing his heart on his sleeve. And he's showing how sad he is. He's not only warning, but there is a, a genuine brokenness, a sadness, a concern. And woes for Jesus in his time were a funeral lament. They were passionate expressions of grief or sorrow at a funeral. And so Jesus, as he is lamenting, he is so sad, deeply grieving and broken about the Pharisees shutting the door of the kingdom. What this looks like for you and me today is that we make people think and feel that they have to do more to be saved. You focus on outward behavior, not on an inwardly transformed heart. And some of us, even now, have good friends of another religion who continue in this time as they observe a, an important season in their lives and they're doing more because they're hoping to be saved. Jesus goes on and he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. A proselyte, that's a, a fancy word for a convert. And so notice here, Jesus is affirming their ministry. They worked hard to convert more and more people to Judaism. And so again, a work. But what were they teaching them? What, what religion were they actually spreading? What were they teaching? And they were teaching that you have to do more to be saved. And so Jesus, this is Jesus. He says, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. That they will become even worse. And that's the trickle-down effect that we, we do see happen in our lives as well. Usually the trickle-down effect, the, the top leader might mean one thing, and as it trickles down to the grassroots, it just morphs into something even more uh, than it wasn't. So what does this look like today? Here, I want to word it this way. For you and me, especially as Christ followers, as Jesus' church, we can be sincerely devoted to Christianity, but not theologically accurate. As Christ's church, as Trinity Grace Church, and as individual followers of Christ, make it a lifelong journey 
to continue to sharpen your theology, to sharpen your beliefs, to keep going to the Bible and forming a beautiful puzzle, putting all the pieces together, a beautiful system of what the Bible teaches holistically, not just focusing on one verse and pulling it out of context and making it conveniently work for what you want in life. But no, trying to, it's, it's a lifelong project. It's a hard work. That's why it's important, even as a church, to evaluate what are we teaching? Because you can be sincerely devoted, but missing the point. Completely missing the mark. Another way that these Pharisees, religious leaders, were missing the mark then is in the next, woe, woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. And so Jesus, he indicts, you blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? What was going on here, and Jesus gives another example after of a sacrifice on the altar and What's more important, that sacrifice or the temple that gives meaning to that sacrifice? And so the Pharisees did, made two mistakes. First, they made gold more important because we know as well, certain Pharisees certainly had an ulterior motive of, of lining their pockets as more money came in. And so they gave more importance to people offering material things so that the temple could become richer. And so there was ulterior motive. And so it misled the people to think that if they give more and, and that, they're, that God will listen to them. But also just flat out, they said they allowed this, uh, you know, oftentimes uh, someone might pray, God, if you do this in my life, then I will do this for you. And in a similar uh, fashion, a similar heart, the, the Pharisees are saying, if you swear by the gold of the temple, because it's more material in their eyes, they made it more important than the actual temple, than the actual altar, which represented the presence of God, God himself, and throwing yourself at the mercies of God. Now what this looks like today is that you focus religiously on broad Christian disciplines more than very specifically relationship with Christ disciplines. All our Christian disciplines, the, the, the big picture end goal should be to draw near to Christ, to be in deeper relationship with Him. All our study, all our reading, all our prayers, all our service, it's not to feel more important and be recognized, but all of that, somehow, it serves to draw us closer to the person, Jesus Christ. Jesus goes on to lament, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill. These small herbs, these tiny little herbs, they were so careful to bean count, and to feel good that they're being accurate about their tithing with these small little herbs. But they neglected the weightier matters of the law. That word weightier there, um, in the English, it, it, 
weightier is, is an okay translation, but there are other nuances to the meaning of that word, and one nuance is painful. You have neglected the painful matters of the law, the harder matters of the law, which is justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Because as you study God's law, as you read it, you will come face to face with a perfectly holy, righteous God. And that, if you are being honest, that should lead your heart to wonder, can I stand before this God? This just God? And that will naturally lead to, just God, please be merciful as well. Somehow make a way for you to show mercy to my sinful heart. That's the weightier matter of the law. God's justice that demands holiness and righteousness, but because we fall short, we need to know how will God show mercy? And what bridges those two things is covenant faithfulness. That's what Jesus is speaking of here. Covenant faithfulness. There needs to be someone who is faithful to the very end to all of God's law and God's covenant and can bridge these two things together. So I offer this definition. I think even in here, Jesus in His way, in His Word, His words is getting at, you need not works, not to figure out how to earn your salvation, but you need to really think hard and wrestle with grace. How are you going to find God's grace as He demands justice and you need mercy and there needs to be a faithful one who can bridge those two things together and save you before God. So I want to offer you a definition of grace today. Grace is God's just condemnation of me replaced by God's merciful acquittal of me purchased by Jesus the Christ's faithfulness instead of me. That's God's grace. It needs the background of God's demanding justice so that His mercy is that much more beautiful and appreciated. And it's purchased by Jesus the Christ's faithfulness instead of me. Now, what this looks like today, if we're to listen to Jesus' woe here, that we don't make much of Jesus' sacrificial love. Uh, On that note, that's why it's so important to come with a whole heart to the Lord's table often. Because there's the one beautiful, precious um, reminder, concrete reminder of Jesus' sacrificial love to you and me, that He has satisfied God's justice by being punished for sin. And that opens up the floodgates of God's mercy to be able to receive us despite our sin. Why? Because of Jesus' covenant faithfulness and being obedient to God and being an acceptable sacrifice instead of you and me. False religion then is continuing to think that I can do it. I can do it. True religion is understanding God's grace and starting. Their starting point is, I can't do it. But now, as I've been loved by God through His grace in Christ, 
Now help me to live the life and to do what you've called me to do. And so Jesus now gets at the heart. Remember this, this point here is false religion leads people to hell for lack of a heart transformed by grace. And Jesus gets right to the heart and he is lamenting for you clean, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. So here's a, a coffee mug that I use from home and it's a pearly white, so beautiful and clean. But inside is, are my coffee stains and my germs. And this is the image that Jesus is saying. You can look beautiful, but inside that you are full of greed and self-indulgence. And so he instructs, first clean the inside of the cup. That's what matters the most, that you clean the inside, meaning the heart, a heart transformed by grace. So what does this look like today? You don't allow the Spirit to search your heart to reveal the cracks. If your Christianity is just outward and you're not spending time in prayer, meditation, quietness, Spirit, search my heart, reveal the cracks, and I feel safe for you to do so because I know you love me. You've purchased my pardon and I'm safe in your grace. So reveal the cracks so that I can become more like your son. Or you don't allow others to call you out on your weaknesses. You idolize appearance and perception. If you struggle a lot with embarrassment, that's another warning sign. Search behind that. What's the heart behind that? Why do you struggle with embarrassment so much? Why do you care so much about what, what people think of you? And so we're to see here as well then, false religion is as old as Satan as temptations. And where I'm getting this is this last woe. Jesus, wow. Such um, just in your face addressal of the Pharisees. You brood of vipers. You uh, just serpents. And Jesus here, he says in this last way, he begins, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. And so they were just giving lip service to these prophets of the old that Jesus had sent in history to, to call uh, his people back to himself. And so they're giving lip service, building these monuments, decorating uh, their tombs, but Jesus says, no, you're actually serpents. You're just putting on an act. You are lying. And this goes all the way back, all the way back to Satan and his tricks. The first serpent. And so this false religion, it, it, it's as old as Satan to want to appear a certain way, to focus more on the outward things, so what is true religion? True religion is coming under Jesus' wing. True religion is coming under Jesus' wing. Why do I say that? Because at the end here, Jesus, he cries out. This is, this is a cry of love. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. In Jesus' culture, when a person's name was repeated twice, it was a sign of deep affection. 
Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And Jesus is referring to all of Israel's history. But not only Israel's history, even going back to Adam and Eve and Abel and Cain. Because Jesus will uh, point out that you killed Abel, the prophet. This is before Israel's time. And so Jesus now, even more broadly speaking, he's speaking of his, his broad longing to gather a people unto himself, to be their God and to dwell with them. And he sent messengers all through history, but they were spurned and killed and rejected. And Jesus says here, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Today, we just think of hens as egg machines, right? Mass egg producing machines. But during Jesus' time uh, in his culture, not only his Jewish culture, but even there was a historian, Plutarch, who wrote uh, a wonderful um, reflection on hens saying the hen is one of the most beautiful creatures Because when danger comes, it spreads its wings and the chicks instinctively gather to its mother hen. And then the mother hen, even before a bear, will cluck wildly to protect these chicks in defense, even willing to give up its own life. And Jesus is speaking of a strong figure that way, a protective figure, wanting to gather his people. And so when Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem here, he's ultimately speaking of his church. And to prove it to you, Revelation 21, what comes down from heaven? The new Jerusalem, which is who? Who is the new Jerusalem? It's the church of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus really here is speaking of all of history, wanting to gather people unto himself to worship him. To worship and have his name on them, on their hearts to be their God and to dwell amongst them. And it should not be lost on us here that Jesus, he predicts the the dead end of this false religion. In verse 38, see your house is left you desolate. This is Jesus' way and he does it in last week's passage as well. He predicts the fall of the temple and it happened under the Roman government, uh, the siege of Rome in 70 AD and it officially in history, represents the end of this false religion and that we need grace. So what is true religion? It's coming under Jesus' wing. And Jesus says here, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And these are words an instruction from Jesus that echoed to this very day. This is for you and me in 2021 as well. See, Jesus, I believe, he's both concrete and abstract. He always had um, several layers to what he was saying. And so I think he's saying here, until you say by faith, by faith, blessed is Jesus because he's the one that God has sent for us. He was saying it, yes, literally to anyone who would listen when he said this uh, some 2,000 years ago. And so Jesus is saying, you need to see me by faith. You need to acknowledge that I'm the one who's blessed by God and has come in God's name as your Savior. 
So what is true religion? It's coming under Jesus' wing. Saying, Jesus, you have settled the weightier matters of the law for me. You have satisfied God's justice and opened up the floodgates of his mercy to me because of your covenant faithfulness. You are the blessed one who's come in the name of God and ministered to me. And so let us say that by faith, even as we pray, Lord, draw me away from false religion by the goodness, truth, and beauty of Jesus.